Welcome to the Compliance Perspectives Podcast. I'm Adam Turtletop from the Society of Corporate Compliance and Ethics and Healthcare Compliance Association. Joining us today from north of Miami is Stuart Pardo. Stuart is a return visitor to the podcast and Associate Professor of Business Law Professional Practice at Miami Herbert Business School at the University of Miami. Uh, First, Stuart, thank you so much for coming back and talking to us again. Thank you for having me. Pleasure to be here. My pleasure. We're going to talk today about ESG and there's a lot of controversy about it. Even some of its proponents have lately said that they think it's due for an eva- a reevaluation and evolution. You believe ESG is here to stay and not just a fad. Can you share with us why? Yes, sure. Well, it's not so much what I believe. I think it's just what the evidence points to. Uh, I think there is and you alluded to that, right? A lot of noise out there, and we could talk briefly about that. But let's talk about just kind of the substance of it. You've got, uh, in descending order, BlackRock, Vanguard, and State Street, three of the largest asset management firms in the world, combined net assets under management of $20 trillion. Okay? The GDP, uh, the gross domestic product of the People's Republic of China, is measured anywhere between 14 and $17 trillion. So we're talking about assets under management larger than the GDP of the second largest economy in the world. Those three asset management firms are very much behind the concept of ESG. They are putting uh, metrics and standards that they're going to impose their uh, companies that they are investing in, many of which, of course, are public companies. And if you look at the annual reports of any random Fortune 500 company, you will see, Adam, uh, almost without exception, quite a bit of uh, ink devoted to the concepts of ESG. And you could say, well, look, this is just talk at this point. But I don't think so in terms of what they're actually doing. They're tying a lot of the executive compensation, performance standards to hitting these ESG metrics. So that is just data point number one. Investment firms are putting their money where their mouth is. The governments and the regulatory bodies, both in the United States and internationally, Securities Exchange Commission this past spring issued, this is spring of 2022, March of 22, issued guidance and proposed regulations on climate reporting for public companies. Uh, The COP27, which just took place in November of 2022 in Sharm el-Sheikh, a lot of money now going to uh, from the you know, wealthier, more developed nations to those nations that are still trying to uh, develop economically. Estimates are that by 2030, we're going to have anywhere up to $340 billion redistributed uh, to countries that can go to more of a carbon neutral environment. So that's the environmental side. Uh, there's also the S in the ESG, the, so- the social aspects. And we saw in the aftermath of uh, you know, the pandemic and then the, the situation with George Floyd and, um, you know, his, his murder by the police in Minneapolis, a lot of uh, responses by corporate America. Uh, we are responding and they are responding to these social issues, I think in part because shareholders and the broader public demand it. And then when we're talking about governance issues, 
uh, tied also to social issues is, you know, what's happening on uh, in California with, you know, the Fast Recovery Act, which now is going to be reviewed, of course, but dealing with increases in minimum wages, having more livable wages for uh, for uh, for people. So it's just it's just it's never ending. Um, but I think, you know, the countervailing views, right, you look at somebody like Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger, they have pushed back on this concept of ESG. And in part, they're channeling what goes back a debate that's been occurring for at least the past 50 plus years, sort of a landmark article that is routinely cited, Milton Friedman, the Nobel laureate, University of Chicago, won his Nobel Prize primarily for monetary uh, theory uh, analyses and work. But he's more widely known for just being a proponent of Adam Smith and free market capitalism. He wrote a very famous, widely cited piece in the New York Magazine in 1970, which basically said, look, uh, the purpose of a business is to maximize profit. That is its moral obligation, full stop. And that view, I think, has been the prevalent view for a long time, certainly before 1970, but Friedman already started to see what was happening in the world and in the economic uh, system. Uh, and, you know, more broadly with this movement of corporate social responsibility, I think he was responding to that and saying, look, we need to pull the reins back. We need to focus more on profit maximization. And that, I think, was very much a prevailing view for much of the 70s and 80s. But it's always been out there. This idea of CSR and corporate social responsibility has always kind of been out there. Now with ESG, it's taken to an entirely uh, new level, in my opinion. Um, and at the end of the day, what we're really talking about is stakeholder capitalism. Uh, we're talking about the fact that you've got businesses, publicly traded companies like Amazon, which have market capitalizations right around a trillion dollars. And again, to compare it to the GDPs of nations, this is comparable to some of the largest countries in the world, like Netherlands or Turkey, top 15, 20 in terms of GDP size. So when we're talking about an Amazon or companies of that ilk and that size, even when not making a decision, by definition, they have an impact. And whether it's in their environmental, their carbon footprint, whether it's in the wages and the benefits they choose to offer to their employees, how they respond to social issues, whether it's a situation of police brutality in the case of George Floyd, or whether it's frankly authoritarianism overseas in China and factories there that are products created that we use and enjoy in the United States. These are all interconnected. Now, it's not to say that there's not valid criticisms of what's going on. The way we measure ESG is still uh, in its very infant stage and frankly has deep flaws in it and there's tremendous abuses. Uh, there's a concept known as greenwashing. You may have may be familiar with it. Others have personally heard of it whereby companies are just trying to promote their green behavior and virtue signal without any much substance behind it. Well, and, and that leads into a question that I have you know, which is, it, look, as long as ESG is a force, organizations are going to be looking to respond to it in some way or another. What do the compliance teams need to know about ESG? Um, you know, what do they need to stay on top of so that, you know, you help prevent greenwashing and other possible uh, violations of law or just lack of integrity moments? Yes. Well, we will start, I would say, with a baseline uh, compliance lens, right, is 
what are the issues that affect us from a compliance point of view? If I'm a publicly traded company and the SEC has propounded regulations that are now uh, the law of the land uh, around reporting for climate-related issues and climate-related claims, uh, I better have a good understanding of that or get the resources that will enable me to do what needs to be done from a compliance perspective. Uh, same thing on the employment side, right? I mean, compliance is a very broad term. But then you'll look, okay, in addition to these sort of industry agnostic assessments, what are the specifics that may affect my industry or my vertical? If I'm in the oil and gas industry, that's going to be a very different set of assessments versus, say, if I'm in professional services. And each of those uh, will inform how I respond. Then you want to look also, Adam, at uh, geography, right? Where are you located? Because, again, these ESG principles, which are now increasingly reflected in uh, regulations and in statutes, uh, and in, frankly, over time in the case law in the United States, uh, is going to be implicated by where you are located, where you are conducting business. What jurisdictional reaches do the regulators have over you? Over you? Um, and then I think you need to be considering a lot of other factors like common sense cost-benefit assessments. I mean, the direction and answer is going to be quite different if you're a market cap publicly traded company with a market cap of $500 billion versus uh, if you're a 10-person uh, firm in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Uh, it's going to inform your answer uh, quite, quite uh, significantly. So I think those are all considerations that you want to take into account. So building off of that then, so how should compliance teams get started uh, in ESG and they're sort of playing a role in ensuring the integrity of it? I mean, you mentioned understand the industry, understand the geography. Are there other factors that should be considered? Yeah, well, I think, again, it's going to depend a lot on your uh, company, business, what uh, is your industry. Uh, and I think also, frankly, what is your culture and commitment to a lot of these principles? Because a lot of these, I still think, remain aspirational. So on the one hand, yes, you've got kind of the very kind of empirical uh, compliance legal standards. And then it's like, okay, how do, we, how do we navigate this? How do we manage our risk, basically? Uh, but then secondly, uh, what are... What are our cultural uh, attributes? You know, what what is our company DNA, to use an overused phrase? But I think it's true. Each company does operate under different principles. And I think part of it might be the branding that they want to project. But part of it might also just be the culture of that organization, the values that are important to them. I teach a course on business ethics, and we spend a tremendous amount of time on the question of corporate culture and how what are the values of the company and how do those values match with norms, meaning the actual behaviors of what you actually do? And this is, I think, some of what you may have been you know, alluding to at the beginning of this talk, which is there seems to be somewhat of a disconnect. There's a lot of hypocrisy even out there, a lot of virtue signaling that doesn't really seem to match with their company's actual behaviors. And that's obviously a real problem. That's where you get into the greenwashing issues, but you also get into you know, brand integrity questions. And, you know, that's very important because for so many organizations, the real value is ultimately the value of their brand. Um, 
what does it mean to people and how much are people willing to pay a premium for that? Now, we've, we've talked about what a lot of the challenges are. I wanna close by talking about opportunities. Um, are there opportunities for compliance programs coming out of the ESG movement? Well, more broadly, and you would be far better able to have a pulse on this than me, but my, my distinct sense, Adam, is I mean, compliance has been and remains a growth area. Uh, you know, pre-pandemic, I mean, the number of participants at, at, at your wonderful conferences and those at others, uh, it's, it's, just, it's just exploding uh, in all areas. So I view ESG as, as kind of uh, being part of that, because ultimately we're talking about regulations and laws that are going to govern and regulate business behaviors that, by definition, will require greater depth, greater expertise, greater understanding, greater education and training. So it creates a lot of opportunities, both uh, personally and professionally for people. Uh, so that's, that's good. Uh, the potential downside I see is, you know, it has a sort of higher purpose, this idea that, you know, why, why do we have ESG, right? The idea is, well, to make it a better world, to leave it a better place than we found it. But if it's just more and more compliance uh, without what I call any of the poetry, without any of the real feeling and purpose behind it, I think it becomes not only just potentially a very hollow exercise, but actually potentially a very counterproductive one. I mean, I'll share as an aside, a lot of my practice, because I, do, I do, do still practice, is in the area of privacy and data security, which also, by the way, falls very much within the ESG compliance framework. Uh, around information security and the integrity of, of personal information. That is a field that has exploded with laws and has created enormous opportunities for uh, people to uh, get in compliance in the legal profession and so forth. Uh, but query, is there actually an improvement in people's personal privacy? Is, are there fewer data breaches? Is security better? Those are all, I think, fair and legitimate questions that are still unanswered and uh, I think need to be because there always has to be, in my opinion, in my humble opinion, a cost-benefit assessment of all of this stuff. Well, to that I would add, uh, there also needs to be a recognition that things change over time um, and that with changing threats and changing social expectations, what's working now may not be working well in the future. Uh, so we need to prepare for an ever-rising floor of behavior. Well, Stuart, thank you so much for sharing these insights with us today. I want to thank all of you for taking the time to listen. I'm Adam Turtletaub from SCCE and ATCA. I hope we're able to expand your compliance perspective. <music>